to the responsibility to protect. Words kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Possibly crimes. Timely and appropriate actions. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today, I'm joined by Philip Grant, Executive Director of Trial International. Thank you for joining us today, Philip. Thanks for having me. Philip, you founded Trial International just over 20 years ago. Could you share a bit about what gaps you saw in accountability for survivors and victims of atrocities and other crimes that you sought to address? Uh, Sure. Let me maybe go a little bit back in in time and mention someone I owe a lot to. Um, His name is Augusto Pinochet. And in 1995 or 96, um, as head of the Chilean army, he was to come, supposed to come to, to Switzerland, um, it seems, on an arms shopping spree. And um, some people in parliament decided, or rather asked the government, to declare him persona non grata in Switzerland because of his human rights record in, in Chile. Um, Switzerland does not have a big tradition of, of making you know, important stances at the international level, but they did declare him persona non grata, uh, telling him not to come. I was one of those at the time uh, who thought it was a stupid decision um, that based on the Convention Against Torture, we should let him in uh, in Switzerland and arrest him once he stepped foot on, on Swiss territory based on uh, uh, very clear provisions of the torture conventions. Uh, working at university at the time as an assistant, my colleagues there were telling me that's not how things happen. Uh, you're a bit naive, um, very sweet, but not uh, the way things uh, generally work. Until two years later, that's exactly what happened when Pinochet was arrested in in London. And for me, I think that was the defining moment in my in my career. Uh, in August '98, the arrest of Pinochet. We were about three months after the Rome conference that led to the founding of the ICC. There was an emerging um, number of institutions in the field of international justice, but that one, the gap that the Pinochet filled was the possibility at the national level to arrest perpetrators present on the territory of countries that were, or that were supposed to at least take seriously uh, the human rights conventions that they had ratified. So this prompted me with others to 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 find to found uh, Trial International, uh, which was set up in um, 2002, uh, about 25 days before the ICC. So we're the senior partner there, um, and uh, and from there, you know, it was originally more a, a volunteer legal organization trying to reproduce the Pinochet precedent, essentially in in Switzerland. There's a lot of tourism in Switzerland. It can be uh, medical tourism. It could be you know. The scenery is obviously uh, beautiful. Uh, there's a lot of people come to see their, their bankers. So we thought Switzerland was a good place to, to start, to try to reproduce the, the Pinochet uh, exercise. Um, it took us a few years until um, we kind of figured out that the Swiss authorities were not really uh, interested uh, in picking up those cases. The legal framework, like in so many other countries, was not yet um, in, uh, in place that would allow for future 
cases to, to happen. Um, so at that point, we decided that we could uh, put our legal expertise also uh, at, the, um, at the service of, of victims groups outside of, of Switzerland. Uh, we started in 2007 um, with a, a first program in Bosnia-Herzegovina that was followed by, by uh, programs in Nepal, in Burundi, in the DRC. Uh, so we work on two levels, basically, at the, at the national level, uh, supporting and accompanying victims of international crimes, trying to access the justice system within their country. And then we work here in Switzerland and increasingly in countries neighboring or, or even further abroad than Switzerland to use universal jurisdiction uh, to go after perpetrators of international crimes that might have relocated here or that might be passing through but also trying to go after uh, corporate actors who might be complicit uh, in, uh, in international crimes. That's amazing. And how does the sort of current work and mandate of trial help in fulfilling these aims? Do you have examples of you know, how you have worked in these spaces to make an impact? So I, I could give you a few examples what happened uh, here in Switzerland or in, in, in neighboring countries using this new and, and growing field of universal uh, jurisdiction, just to give you very, very recent um, examples. So we've um, picked up the trace of a number of suspects um, who have uh, relocated or, or have arrived in, in Switzerland, in, in France, in Germany and, and other countries. Um, and, and when that happens, uh, we, we investigate the case, we try to document it. It could be through open source, it could be going um, on, the, on the field, it could be working with our partners in countries where we have uh, field uh, presences. Um, and, and it's basically uh, getting, getting a case ready to file it with uh, prosecutors or investigative uh, authorities in countries that have uh, universal jurisdiction provisions. And these cases eventually are being picked up by the authorities and we continue uh, supporting victims, providing them lawyers, accompanying them uh, through the, the proceedings, making sure they have uh, psychosocial support throughout, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so once those cases get, get going and, and eventually arrests take place and, and trials uh, happen, um, well, we... Uh, generally take the, the back seat and let the prosecutors uh, do their the job and eventually uh, the courts uh, decide on, on the merits of, of, of the cases. At the precise moment where we speak, uh, we have a trial, for example, running in, in Germany where a member of a Gambian death squad is on trial for crimes against humanity. Uh, that's the very first trial uh, relating to uh, Gambian suspects at least outside of, of the Gambia. Uh, we will have, in January of, of next year, another Gambian, really high-level uh, suspect, the former Minister of the Interior, the right-hand man of Yaya Jame, Usman Sonko, uh, who's been in pre-trial detention for way too long, <laughs> almost seven years now in, in Switzerland. He's going to trial as well on charges of uh, crimes against humanity. Um, there's another Gambian suspect uh, in uh, pretrial detention in the U.S. who's supposed to go on trial next year uh, for the crime uh, of, of, uh, of torture. Um, and then we have 
other from other situations, um, also sometimes very high level suspects, the former Minister of Defense of Algeria, Khaled Nezar, will go on trial in Switzerland, probably by the middle of, of next year. That case has been ongoing uh, for a good dozen years now um, already. Uh, France has just announced a few weeks back that a, a rebel leader, Roger Lumbala, who's also in pretrial detention, will also be sent to court uh, probably in a year or, or, or a year and a half on uh, crimes against humanity um, charges as, as well. Uh, so that man, who was also uh, a former minister in the DRC government, would be the third minister level suspect uh, that will go on, on on trial in the coming uh, in the coming months so that's part of the job that we do here uh, we can come back to it a bit later if you if you want and another part is is, is trying to engage uh, with the national systems uh, in the countries so in the in the DRC we've been present now for uh, about almost 10 years uh, and we've participated in and I'm sorry there, I didn't do my homework, but in, in dozens of trials already at the, at the national level, essentially before military courts, uh, one of the most interesting cases, and also one of the first one we worked on, um, is a case called the Kavumu case. And it's centered around a series of, of horrific crimes that took place in the eastern province of South Kivu. Uh, in a town called Kavumu, uh, where from 2013 to 2016, uh, dozens of young girls uh, aged between 18 months and, and more or less uh, 12 years or so were abducted and, and raped by, by this um, militia, uh, members of a local militia headed by uh, a man who was also a provincial MP. Um, our friends who, from Physicians for Human Rights who were working on these cases, uh, also on the, on the medical side of it, asked us to get involved in 2016 uh, because the cases that were filed from the, the families of the, the, the raped um, children were stuck before a civilian magistrate, a corrupt functionary referred to often as Mr. $50 because he would not act unless he would receive his, his $50. So we jumped in the case and analyzed the evidence and kind of came to the conclusion that there would be an opening if we could qualify what was happening as crimes against humanity. If, if we could get that legal determination, it could get the military system, the military justice involved because they have jurisdiction over crimes against humanity. So we uh, came to that conclusion and submitted the case to the military justice there, uh, which prompted a complete change in, in, uh, in, in the case. All of a sudden, it was handled very quickly, very promptly, very efficiently, professionally. Dozens of members of the militia group were, were arrested. The abductions and the rapes stopped almost from one day to the, to the other. And eventually the case went to court. And in December of 2017, 11 of the militia men on trial were found guilty of crimes against humanity uh, by, by rape, uh, including the local um, parliamentarian and sentenced to, to life in prison, uh, all of them. That was really a landmark case in the DRC, one of the first times that a high-ranking official was uh, convicted for such, such crimes. Um, also very important for, for, for the systematic nature of the sexual, sexual violence as weapon of war that, that has been too often practiced uh, in that part of the, of the country, but also the way in which the court dealt with the case, the, the, the handling, the sensitive handling of underage 
uh, victims of crimes of such nature, all, all of the protective measures that were put in place so that they could testify without the risk of traumatization being accompanied by psychosocial um, actors who could, could support them throughout the, uh, the trial. And I think it set up a very important precedent for the, for the country, uh, showing that even military courts could, could rule on such cases very effectively. And from, from then, we've had, you know, as I mentioned, dozens of trials taken place, often on the questions of sexual violence. But uh, in, in too many situations, the crimes go way beyond uh, sexual violence to, to encompass all the atrocities that can be uh, committed in, in a civil uh, war conflict. Uh, just to give you maybe two or three highlights of the work that we've undertaken and, and how um, when you have the expertise around, when you have also the willingness from justice actors to, to, to get involved in, in such process, you, you can actually make a, a real change. We've had uh, a number of, of high-profile cases that have ended with uh, jurisprudence that is pretty progressive coming from military courts. I'll give you two or three uh, additional examples very shortly. Um, in, in, in 2019, a military court found that the state of Congo uh, was liable um, or was accountable for the fact that it had not prevented and protected the civilian population from attacks coming from a rebel group. So the state was not itself involved. It was uh, outside forces that had uh, attacked the, the civilian population. But the military courts found that the state had not done enough to protect um, its own population and and awarded uh, reparations in various forms to uh, the, the affected communities. Uh, we managed to get the uh, military courts to use, for example, video evidence in the, in the courtroom in a number of, of cases. Uh, we pushed the military court in 2021 uh, for the first time uh, to recognize environmental crimes um, as crimes that they could pin uh, up upon um, a particular bloody rebel uh, commander. Um, this year, uh, the crime of forced pregnancy was first recognized by a national court anywhere in the world. It's been recognized by the ICC, but for the first time, it has been recognized in the, in the DRC. So I think all of these cases, and, the, and there's been a lot more, not just on, on, on rebel groups. Uh, it's of, often sometimes also um, military uh, members, I mean, of the, of the uh, armed forces of the DRC uh, that are on trial. It's sometimes high-ranking police officers. So we try to kind of balance a little bit our, our, our work and, and not just focus on, on one actor. I think, I think all of these uh, cases are, are a testimony to um, the fact that when you when you work together with various actors on the ground, when you bring your own piece of the puzzle to the table, your legal expertise with the other components of the justice system, uh, you can really get some uh, highly interesting things uh, done. Excellent. And, you know, you've touched on this a little in your description of your work, but, you know, what is the impact of these um, sort of high-level criminal cases under universal jurisdiction under, you know, what is the impact of, you know, as you put it, the progressive jurisprudence you've seen for victims and survivors of atrocity crimes, for those who have endured and suffered um, as a result of these abuses? What is the impact of justice for them? I think when you had a, a legal NGO, you 
you have to be honest about about some some things that are difficult to not to say but but for us to to realize we we do two things actually we defend individual victims we act as lawyers in particular cases and we represent the interest of victims at the same time as an ngo we have we have an, an agenda we have objectives that we want to to reach um, we undertake strategic litigation with a sense that at the end of the process we could get uh, progressive jurisprudence that could change behavior that could open up doors that can i don't know get rid of immunities that can etc etc and sometimes there is a field of tensions be- between the two um, an individual victim or a group of victims might might not necessarily wish for what you want as 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 an ngo lawyer uh, so when that happens we we have to take the side of victims we we have to put aside our our objectives as as an ngo we have to um you know put on the 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 hat of of the lawyer and stick to the victims and i think we've done that very consistently throughout even though sometimes the decisions made by victims the choice in which they want their case to to unfold was not necessarily what we would have wanted i can give you some some examples of of victims uh, wanting to to stop a case because there was an offer of of financial compensation that was more suitable to them than obtaining maybe a first uh condemnation in a particular case uh you might have in 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 universal jurisdiction cases that happened uh, very recently where uh because of the time it takes for these cases to advance one of the victims um unfortunately died and and the family is not willing uh, who doesn't want to to continue the case so we have to we have to um respect that very very firmly that said uh, i have to also acknowledge that the immense courage of a lot of these victims um it's it's a process that is often long that is often complicated that can bring about stigma that can bring about retraumatization that can bring about risks uh, we don't talk a lot about that but if someone is being sentenced to let's say something else than a life sentence at the end of the process and goes back to the country what what happens very concretely on on the ground what are the risks for those who step forward as witnesses or as civil parties to to cases so i have to really take my hat off to the courage of a huge amount a huge number of, of victims who are willing to to bring the case uh, forward in the in the best case scenario um these these cases these trials end up with with convictions with reparations being awarded and then what is interesting i think and and that's the strategic nature of these cases you start to have some sort of a of a feedback loop i mentioned the the gambian cases that are ongoing in germany and that will uh, take place in in switzerland the trial of the former minister of the interior of uh, another a member of a death squad in in the us these cases also have the potentiality uh, to be used by uh, human rights organizations in the gambia to advocate themselves for for more accountability in the country i i think you know the situation in the gambia pretty well yourself um i think the 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 usage that can be made of these cases to advocate for more justice more accountability is is something that we are not yet really seeing but that will probably happen 
And that's where I think NGOs such as ours play an important role in making sure the people on the ground, those who have an interest in these cases, can follow them. We have a huge amount of work to do on outreach around these cases, on making them understandable, accessible, but also making sure whatever evidence comes out of these trials can be then fed into the system in the country itself to maybe open up new cases or advocate for more more justice. You know, I was going to ask you about um, the role you see individual criminal accountability playing in in deterrence, but I I think it's actually come out quite a bit in um, the DRC example you provided when you said that, you know, the sexual violence and abductions stopped while the trials were kicking off. And I think it also comes out a bit in this, this Gambia example, where as you expand kind of accountability, you also expand potential for, you know, defining things as crimes and therefore enabling the courts to go through these processes to prevent atrocities in the future. I might just add then then one little uh, additional element. I think the beauty also with legal cases, and of course you have a, le- a lawyer now, now speaking, is that sometimes you get real interesting jurisprudence out of these cases. And, and, and these sometimes clarification of what legal norms exactly mean, they will percolate down into the, the system and be, and be reused either by other courts or eventually even end up in, you know, in, in military uh, manuals. They will end up in in military law academies and be and be taught. And it's not just, and I think that's the beauty of the system, it's not just ICC or ICTY jurisprudence that then go down and, and, and are being uh, used by national authorities. It's sometimes also the other way around. It's, it's local courts coming up with interesting interpretation of, of the law and, and feeding those decisions into an international system. We see the ICC being interested in some of the cases that we have at the at the national level and how that can be used. I, I'll give you another example in relation to the DRC. A few weeks ago, um, France indicted Roger Lumbala, a former minister and, and, and um, um, commander of an armed group. And in, in defining one of the elements, one of the charges, uh, the the destruction of, of civilian property as being a crime against humanity, they interpreted or they used jurisprudence from the DRC on cases that we had worked and how they analyzed the destruction of property when you, you know, destroy someone's livelihood, when you destroy someone's house and, and how that can be uh, in human treatment as a crime against humanity. So the, the French judge went to interpret or see how local courts had interpreted uh, the crime against humanity notion of, of um, the, these inhuman acts and used it in, in, in this decision. So, so you see it goes really in, in, in multiple directions. It's, a, I think, a good example of, of cross-fertilization of, of the law. What is one of the biggest challenges in your work to achieve justice for victims of atrocity crimes? Oh, there are many, many challenges. I think the first one is, is having uh, sound legal frameworks uh, where we're far from having that. I mean, even in the, the most um, advanced countries, there are always 
uh, loopholes around um, that that um, suspects will be able to to use. Uh, I often take the example of Italy, you know, the country of the Rome Statute of the ICC. Uh, Italy has not yet domesticated the ICC. I mean, what do you want to do if 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 those countries that are supposed to be at the forefront of the fight against impunity are not even doing the basics, you know, the the the, the homework that should be. Um, the, the, the easiest part, actually, just getting their frameworks, uh, their legal frameworks in, in line with international standards, then the challenges will be will be very high. Um, political will uh, is, is often lacking, of course. We know that uh, across the board. But what does that mean concretely? Uh, we don't work with the, with the ICC. We don't really work at the international level. We really try to engage with the national systems. Uh, what does it mean nationally? It's, it's sometimes... You know, having just the, the the basic resources to to lead investigations. So, if you take the case of of Switzerland, uh, our authorities often you know use the reference to the to the Geneva Conventions, uh, how important they are. But when you have to do the concrete work, when you have to give resources to your prosecutor's office, uh, things go in a different direction. We've been stuck in some cases with. Um, files that have been you know, handled for seven, 10 or, or 12 years. And you're talking about really high level perpetrators. I'll give you just a very, very simple example. In, in 2013, we filed a criminal complaint against Rifat al-Assad. Rifat al-Assad is the uncle of Bashar al-Assad. And when Bashar's father, Hafez al-Assad, was president of the country, he was Rifat in charge of the defense brigades, which were kind of the elite shock troops that were sent uh, for the for the worst of the repressive uh, work, including in 1982 in Hama, uh, where following an uprising, um, the brigade defense came in and, and for three weeks just destroyed like one third of the city and, and killed between 10 and, and 30,000 people. Whole scale massacre with all the atrocities. Uh, that you can imagine. Rifat el-Assad was in a five-star hotel in Geneva, probably sipping a martini at the bar when Syrians saw him and alerted us to his presence. We did a long investigation on his role in the Hama massacre. We talked to witnesses, we talked to victims, represented victims before, before the office of the attorney uh, general, we talked to insiders, people who were within the military who could, you know, bring testimony to to his role. Rifat al-Assad at the time was in exile in neighboring France. He came back to Geneva in 2015, and again in the same five-star hotel on the Geneva lakefront, uh, we managed to pick up his trace again and you know denounce him to the authorities, saying, "Here's a guy, uh, you know, you have." Uh, a Karadzic, Mladic-like level of, of person who is there, who is at your disposal. You have the evidence that an NGO has submitted. You have an offer of testimonies from victims, from witnesses, from insiders, etc. It's the perfect case. And you have a civil war ongoing in Syria with mass atrocities in 2015, you know, raging throughout the country. Imagine what would have happened had the office of the attorney general arrested Rifat al-Assad at the time? The signal it would have sent to 
the clan in power in, in Syria. What did the office of the attorney general do? They came to his hotel room. They nicely interrogated him uh, for a, you know, half, a, half a morning and then let him go. And, and he was never arrested. Uh, he was charged in, in, in Switzerland. Uh, the case is still open. It's being investigated for, for war crimes. Uh, but he was, uh, he was free to go. He went back to France and eventually uh, got back to, to Syria um, about two years ago. So he's now out of reach of, of justice. I think that case illustrates some of the cha challenges that we face, even in a country such as Switzerland, where you're supposed to have the framework in place, the, the resources at your disposal. I mean, Switzerland is not a poor country. Sometimes there's a lack of, of political will or at least of strategic vision of what these cases can can bring. It's so it's so frustrating, you know, to hear you talk about um, this lack of willingness and lack of, of motion because we see it all the time in our work in atrocity prevention as well. Um, so far, we've talked a lot about kind of these individual cases and individual um, perpetrators we can hold accountable. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little on, on the challenges in kind of identifying state responsibility. Uh, we, we've had a long practice uh, at Trial International of um, taking on states before international human rights bodies, be it regional mechanisms, the, the African Commission, the European Court, or universal mechanisms, the, the UN, the various uh, treaty bodies, trying to get decisions from those uh, international human rights courts or bodies telling states what exactly they have to do to implement their obligations to, to put in practice the, the, the general uh, accountability framework, the right to truth, the right to justice, the right to reparations, etc. Et um, I can I can give you one example of what can be achieved, but also the difficulties that come along with it. Um, we, we've been working in Bosnia Herzegovina for a long time alongside various groups, uh, including uh, survivors of, of sexual violence. And one of the cases that we brought to the Committee Against Torture was a, a groundbreaking case that the Committee uh, Against Torture decided upon in 2019, um, telling Bosnia and, and, and Herzegovina that it had violated the Torture Convention uh, by failing to pay compensation to uh, the complainant and that Bosnia needed to go further than than that they had to ensure uh, that the individual uh, petitioner received immediate and free medical and psychosocial care but they also had to issue an apology an official apology to the to the victim and even beyond that um, the the committee against torture told bosnia herzegovina it must establish an effective reparation scheme at the national level for this person but for all victims of of torture, including victims of, of sexual violence. So the decision itself was really groundbreaking. First time that the Committee Against Torture had decided in such a way on Bosnia and on the question of survivors of, of sexual violence. But then you have to go back to the state. You have to go back with your nice UN decision and advocate for years, and we're still in the process of that, to have that decision um, implemented. So I think it, it gives you an illustration of the difficulties to, to work with uh, states, including in Bosnia, that are fractured states, uh, where it's really complicated 
uh, to have at the national level a coherent response uh, to what has been uh, committed during the, the civil war. But it does open uh, a room uh, for advocacy and advocacy based on, on the rule of law, on conventions that have been ratified by the state. And you can use the various ongoing process, the, uh, the wish to join the European Union, Union as, uh, as leverage uh, to push the authorities to, to implement um, those, those decisions. You know, over the over the course of this conversation, a few things have come up that I, I find interesting. One is, you know, the the kind of very common theme um, in international justice of it takes a long time um, to hold perpetrators accountable. You gave the, the Gambia case of the high level official who's been sort of waiting in detention for I think it was more than seven years for a trial. And we also have cases where it's been decades between when crimes were committed and when perpetrators were held accountable. And yet we've also talked about things that are groundbreaking and progressive. And I think the space for international criminal accountability, for international investigation of crimes has evolved dramatically since Trial International was founded. Um, from the creation of the ICC, you know, a month or so after you were established uh, to the creation of the Human Rights Council and its various investigative mechanisms and monitoring mechanisms um, and then other critical developments in investigations and jurisprudence. So how has the expansion of things like universal jurisdiction, like these investigative tools over the past 20 years, impacted your work and the capacity to achieve justice for victims? I mean, you're, you're right. We're, we're playing for the long term here. Uh, it's it's not uh, in in weeks, months, or years uh, that we need to count, but probably in in decades. You know, we're still all referring to Nuremberg as the the founding stone of accountability. Uh, I mean, Nuremberg was eighty years ago, and we're still referring to that as being you know one of the the rare instances. Well, there's been some stuff ongoing in in the past twenty twenty five years, but. That said, I think the pace is is accelerating. We're, we we are seeing some some seismic changes happening. Um, the Russian aggression against Ukraine uh, is maybe one of those moments where where we see states and and various actors grasp the importance of international law and the necessity to have a system grounded in law to answer such such situations and we're not there we have a lot of work to do just to get the legal frameworks up to up to date and i'm not even talking about what's happening in in palestine at the moment that said i'm i'm seeing some ameliorations i'm seeing some improvement on a number of, of fronts universal jurisdiction for example is one of those domains where things are picking up at an increasing pace, uh, we, we're hearing from investigators now that they, they, they can't deal with all the uh, the cases that they have. Uh, France or Germany have hundreds of cases opened. Uh, and when you understand that France, for example, can only hold two trials a year, it's going to take decades for them to go through through all of these cases. So we have big challenges coming up. One of them, I think, will be also where do you put your priorities? It's It's hugely complicated. But when you have Ukraine, when you have Palestine, when you have uh, Sudan, Afghanistan, etc., and you still have Rwandan cases ongoing, or you still have cases from Algeria, or you still have 1988 prison massacre cases in, in, in Iran, how, how do you deal with them? Where do you put your priorities? And 
to be frank, I don't have an answer to that. I, I don't know. Um, there are individual questions there. There are more uh, systemic issues at, at stake. It's, it's, very, it's very complicated. I think at least we need, we need resources. That is very clear. Uh, if, you can, uh, if you can support Ukraine with billions in, in arms, I think you should support the international legal system and the national judiciary with hundreds of millions. Um, uh, so, I, yeah, the, the increased political will that we are seeing, I think, uh, emerging, albeit a bit selectively, has to have direct consequences in, in the level of support that is given to international courts, but also uh, to building up national judicial systems. I think the key lies, and that's how the system is supposed to work, with national authorities leaving the big fishes to, to the international uh, criminal court in particular. Um, but if you, yeah, again, if you can support Ukraine and others with billions in, in arms, you should be able uh, to put tens of millions or, or even more into uh, building coherent uh, judicial systems and making sure investigative and prosecuting authorities uh, have enough resources to to tackle the immense impunity gap uh, that still exists. Bearing in mind the challenges you identified in terms of the volume of universal jurisdiction cases and the amount of work that goes into each trial, you know what is your perspective on the state of universal jurisdiction and what we can achieve with it. Let's let's try to be positive. Uh, so on the upside, I'm I'm seeing, and not just considering the cases handled by my organizations, but also in in, in other contexts. For example, the level of perpetrators is is really um, in in many UJ cases uh, reaching top level officials. You you have now number of ministers that will go on on trial. Uh, in Switzerland and, and France, you've had Argentina uh, just being um, engaging with uh, um, a universal jurisdiction case against the former president of Colombia uh, for thousands of cases of extrajudicial killings. So I think you're seeing the circle of accountability gently expand to cover higher uh, people in the, in the chain of, of command. And the second aspect I'm seeing is also the quality of some of the suspects, including now, and we're starting to have the first precedence in, in a case in Sweden, corporate actors, Western corporate actors being brought to trial on universal jurisdiction uh, basis for crimes in that instance, uh, complicity in war crimes committed in, in Sudan. And I do see the potentiality for universal jurisdiction at some point to encompass more and more of the Western actors, the facilitators, the, the corporate actors who partake in pillaging of natural resources to potentially arm dealers, those in the art sector that benefit from pillaging of cultural goods, uh, etc. So I think used wisely, universal jurisdiction does have also the potentiality to become a bit more universal. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and we'd be grateful if you left us a review. For more information on the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, and populations at risk of mass atrocities, 
visit our website at www.globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.